Uh, good morning, uh, members of the European Union and others. I am uh, <laughs> March 2019, it's right here. Um, I'm a British, an artist and an academic, so there aren't really enough apologies in the world for what I've got for you. But um, I've got a little bit of extra time, which is lucky, because I'm going to take us on this um, journey through the relationship of imagination and technology, which is really a two-way street. When we imagine machines, we also create the capacity to imagine new machines out of the existing machines we have. My concern, and I'm, I'm glad this has somewhat been brought up in the, the last two talks, is that the imagination we have has become somewhat limited and foreclosed. That the narrative we have for technology, which is fundamentally the relationship between a technique and the social necessity of the deployment of that technique, is one of productivity and efficiency. That that's what technology is for, that the ultimate enhancement to the human condition is basically to be able to produce and consume stuff faster and more efficient. And somewhere along the line in history, in the pre-20th century, we used to have other dreams of technology. We used to have more kind of existential desires for what our devices and our machines were for. And I'm kind of interested in tactics we may use to get back to that mindset which is going to be tricky, it's going to be hard, but if we don't, then we're just kind of stuck in this age of anxiety where, as mentioned in the last two talks, we're just pinged with notifications telling us we're not good enough at being human. So I'm going to start with this quote from Stephen Conner. He's a literary theorist and philosopher. He wrote this incredible book called Dream Machines. I'd recommend everybody read it, but he ends with this fantastic quote. There is no way of framing ethical, political, and philosophical questions that would not also have to be a matter of techne, technique or technesis, and so would not have to be imagined mechanically. What he's saying with this is that the human is fundamentally technological. There is nothing we can do, there is nothing we can comprehend, there is no way of cognating the world that is not mechanical. You can think of the fact that we've spent huge amounts of uh, the post-Enlightenment era trying to classify the disorganized mess of nature, to put it into trees and hierarchies and systems and visualizations, a way of technologizing it. Because once you name something, you can control it. The purpose of, of making the world legible, of giving name to everything, of giving it purpose, of describing its qualities and its, its kind of limits and its opportunities is so that we can control it better. So we reshape the earth in this mechanical image, this image of uh, industrialized agriculture and mass shipping. But it wasn't always like this. There was a time where technology was a thing of wonder, a thing of enchantment, and a thing that had kind of, you know, almost supernatural possibility in it. This is the Mechanical Turk. Who's familiar with the Mechanical Turk? Cool, that's, that's a good, good quantity of people. It's on um, exhibition in Utrecht in the Netherlands at the moment, so I'd recommend going and seeing it if you're ever up that way. The Mechanical Turk was an apparently autonomous chess-playing machine built by Wolfgang von Kempelen in 1770. And it was, it was the ninth wonder of the world, the eighth wonder of the world, sorry, at the time that it, was, that it was out, at the time that it was touring the royal courts of Europe. It played chess against Napoleon, for instance. Because no one knew how it worked. We now know that it works because there's a small human cleverly hidden inside it, and the sort of moving of uh, various drawers and levers con continues to conceal them. But at the time, people were speculating wildly. Some people thought that it was sort of operated by hidden levers and pulleys, perhaps under the floor. Some people thought that it was haunted by the spirit of a Prussian mercenary who you were playing chess against. There was a journalist from the Southern Literary Review who went to visit the Turk and gave us one of the world's first pieces of technological criticism. 
um, and he wrote this opening paragraph to his review. He said, no exhibition of the kind has ever elicited so general attention as the chess player of Metzl. Wherever seen, it has been an object of intense curiosity to all persons who think. Yet the question of its modus operandi, the way it works, is still undetermined. Nothing has been written on this topic which can be considered as decisive. And accordingly, we find everywhere men of mechanical genius, of great general acuteness and discriminative understanding, who make no scruple in pronouncing the automaton a pure machine, unconnected with human agency and its movements, and consequently, beyond all comparison, the most astonishing of the inventions of mankind. And such it would undoubtedly be were they right in their supposition. The journalist who wrote this fantastic article, which is online and I recommend going and reading, because it's about 1,500 words of really early technological criticism, was Edgar Allan Poe. Does that come up? Oh no, I'm pressing the laser. There we go. It was Edgar Allan Poe, who about 10 years after this published his first uh, book of short stories. Um, Edgar Allan Poe's short stories were what he called tales of ratiocination or rationalization. The purpose of Edgar Allan Poe's horror wasn't to kind of titillate and excite, it was to examine the qualities of the world, the social, the technical, and the political qualities of the world. And he viewed technology in much the same way, as a puzzle to be unlocked with the power of imagination. He unfortunately didn't solve the, uh, the, the riddle of how the, the chess-playing Turk worked, but he, became, he came very close. Around the same time, well, about 50 years after the, um, after the invention of the Turk, but when it was still very popular around Europe, um, a group of uh, spiritualists petitioned the US Congress for uh, money to conduct mesmeric experiments using the telegraph system. This, uh, this is a particularly interesting time in US history. It's a time when there are three kind of confluent factors forming the American identity. Uh, one is a rejection of European values. The other is a kind of mass technologization and really rapid industrialization of the type that hadn't really been seen until, or wouldn't be seen again until Japan in the early 20th century. And finally was a rise of spiritualism, the belief in the sort of the supernatural and the spirit world as a mainstream kind of social construct. And so when the telegraph was proven uh, uh, feasible by Morse, when it's backed by Congress, as most projects are, as a military experiment, the next logical stage was to reach the dead, was to speak to the dead. That was what was next. We can now traverse the globe instantaneously, a thing that in 1854 would have been so incredibly powerful as a notion, as so as to say to reach the dead is the next logical step. And we still carry some fantasies of technology through. We have you know, lots of fantasies from cartoons, particularly in the 20th century. The Jetsons, of course, brought us this very popularized notion of the flying car. But we don't have the flying car. We still have the crap car, the boring car, the car that gives us loads of traffic jams. I find the car a really interesting case study for talking about imagination and technology, because the car has been largely unchanged for about 100 years. We've incrementally improved it, fuel's got more efficient, we're now seeing the beginning of autonomous vehicles, but as a thing that occupies 40% of the space of a city, that's never changed. 40% of the space of a city is still a space exclusively for killing humans in. 27,500 people died in the UK last year from car-related deaths, whether accidents or from pollution. And we never challenge this, we never think beyond it, we just incrementally make it less shit, bit by bit. So where does this begin? Where does this, this idea that the only thing we can do is become more productive and more efficient, that reaching the you know, spirit world is laughable, that, that, that thinking beyond the car is impossible? It starts in the interwar period, in the 20th century, with the industrialization of uh, um, 
sort of popular manufacturing, particularly around armaments and, and domestic objects and things like that. So Frank and Lillian Gilbraith conducted a series of very uh, famous time and motion studies. And they looked at the movement of factory workers or clerical workers uh, relative to the tasks they had to do and the tools they had to use to do these. So they had this, generally this grid background. They would take a series of long exposure photographs, or in this case, for the time, extremely high frame rate films, and time the workflow of these tasks that people were, were performing. And then they would work to improve the workflow by changing the behavior of the humans. Um, in the last talk, we heard about this idea that we've always been cyborg. This was very much making the human part of the cyborg construct as efficient as possible. And it's also here where we find the origin of human-centered design, right? This idea that humans are somehow inefficient and are a design problem to be solved. And then with the... I'm going to tweet the volume down a little bit. With the end of, um, uh, of, the, of the war economies, this mass uh, production and the energy put into this industrialization, this technologization, goes into the home. Companies like General Motors start working on designs of the future kitchen which follow the same ideology, one of efficiency and productivity, one where the human has so far been flawed, but with the right augmentation, they can consume and produce more efficiently. This is also the beginning of the perception of the home as a capitalist node, not just as somewhere where you go to be safe and seek shelter, but somewhere that products and organizations move through and are transformed and are profited by it. And this is still here today. This is still where we are today, really. It's never changed. This is, if you Google image search Internet of Things, this is around half of what you get. The genre of images known as put a phone in front of something to make it better. This is driven, again, by the notion that you're flawed. You don't know how to cook fucking salmon, but this app does, and we'll help you do it better. Or, you know, you don't know how to look after your home or how to be more climate aware, but with this app, you can do it better. It's arbitrarily displacing the kind of existential effort of being human onto uh, devices, onto apps that gain this sense of trust simply because they overwhelm us with data or information or some sort of performed veracity. And this, of course, still infects our future visions. This is now quite an old future vision, but I mean, any of these you know, design fictions from, uh, from various IT organizations around the world are replete with this idea that the home will be better if we just add more data and more screens. The home will be better, will be more efficient, will be more uh, livable, will be more productive if these processes, if these cyborgian processes are enhanced somehow. There's no sense in any of these visions of dealing with the existential angst of being a human being suffering under the threat of the oncoming food wars of Europe in 2050. It's all about production and efficiency. It's also just as gendered and flawed as the stuff from the 1950s. The guy works, the woman stays at home. Um, it's 2013, come on. Um, and even, even outside the home, even in the bits between the home, even in the bits where you think you might be able to daydream for five or six seconds, you're, you're told that this is space where you could be me, being more efficient and more productive. This is a photo from outside London Bridge where Microsoft are telling us that we should be sending proposals while walking out of the station. You know, not phoning our kids, not, you know, thinking about what we want for dinner, you know, not fantasizing about something, but actually just doing more work, more labor. I didn't do it, but it, interestingly, if you Google autonomous car images, you'll find a lot of them include people working inside the autonomous car. That that's already been colonized, this space for efficiency and productivity. And this is kind of, you know, quite heavily critiqued because a lot of these, these tools of productivity and efficiency are quite puerile. They're quite childish. They're quite 
you know, in video game terms, they're fetch quests. They're about bringing you things from somewhere else. It comes from a culture in Silicon Valley where people work 17-hour days and haven't yet learned to drive, and so they build things that suit their lifestyle. And it doesn't really play into any greater human imaginaries. It doesn't really play into any of the things that were mentioned in the first talk, or even things that the spiritualists were thinking about in the 1850s. It plays into the performance of basic tasks which free you to do other forms of labor. And when this, when this force of what technology is for becomes to, comes to dominate our narrative, it starts to dominate our future narratives. It starts to what, what Mark Hansen calls a foreclosure of the aesthetics of the future. The future becomes homogenized, it becomes divided, sorry, it becomes uh, 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 decided and described by the imagination we have for technology. So if you Google, oh, I, I duck, duck, go, because I'm a masochist and I like hurting myself, but if you duck, duck, go, future city, you might get lucky and it'll give you what you want. And it gives you these kind of, these homogenous images of the future city. They're all rendered, they're kind of silvery spires, everything's idyllic, barring the odd sort of more dystopian one. You know, there's no kind of notion of individual people in there. They tend to be these kind of uh, master plan looks, which has its own problems. And of course, these future imaginaries that are born from our current technology come back on us and then start to influence the way we actually start to build the future. So a lot of my work recently has been looking at the politics of um, 3D rendering software, since almost all uh, industries now use 3D rendering software at some stage in their process, particularly for describing and rendering a product for future consumers. This is um, Crystal CG, who are the world's biggest render farm, and they render tens, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of images for architects and developers of the future city, all of it informed by the pre-existing conceptions of what the future city should be. So our actual future city becomes homogenized and rendered, that foreclosure of aesthetic kind of like uh, imagination is, is gone, because this is the only thing we can imagine. Carl de Salvo says that the reason we can't challenge this is they look so damn good. They don't look flawed. If they were flawed, we'd question them. If they were sketches, if they were dodgy models, we'd be able to question them, be able to say, do we really want this? Do we want this massive 38-story development in the middle of the city? But because they're so compelling, we're stuck with them. We used to, we, we were forewarned about this rather. This is um, the continuous monument from Super Studio. Who's aware of the work of Super Studio? Two people, okay. <laughs> All right, so for, for your design history nerds, this is the mo one of the most significant moments of design history. Super Studio released a project called the Continuous Monument. They, they uh, were the first designers to reject design as a practice and said that design was responsible for furthering the hegemonic future that was being constructed by the modernists in the 60s. They created quite famously this, this, uh, this speculative architectural work called the Continuous Monument, which is a, a, an infinite band that encircles the earth of steel and glass, which everybody lives inside, as a kind of statement piece about the, the, what they saw as the oncoming homogenization of the future. But we're there now. We're in Super Studios' dystopia. We've all bought into the same ideology. They were saying that, you know, at a time when Italy was still quite fractured, because they were an Italian group, you know, the Milanese, the Florentines, the Romans, they all were all different, and they were being united by this capitalist culture of the West, which was, was destroying their sense of individuality. So this feedback loop between the future and the past happens at a kind of industrial scale, but it also happens at like the consumer scale. The relationship between science fiction and actual innovation is really well documented, but here's a, here's a really good example. This is um, 2013's Minority Report, and there was a designer from MIT who worked on a lot of the um, products that Tom Cruise and, and co. use in the film. This is the very famous gestural interface that he uses to kind of swipe around various media and videos and windows and things like that at the very beginning of the film. 
And it was pointed out at the time that it's, it's deeply inefficient, it's quite hard work, it's very tiring. After 10 minutes, he had to take a rest because his arms would become exhausted. Compared to operating a mouse or a trackpad, this is vastly inefficient. Nonetheless, for 10 years, people keep trying to build the gestural interface from Minority Report. We're still going with this. We're still trying to build these things that we see in fantasies because the fantasy is so rich and appealing. The fantasy we've been given is so compelling that we need to recreate it. Actual design principles be damned. And then even further back in science fiction, we look at something like the holodeck. Uh, Catherine Hales refers to the holodeck as kind of the perfect dream machine because the holodeck from Star Trek can recreate and simulate any environment, any world you can imagine can be built and physically interacted with in the holodeck. But what did the, the intrepid Star Trekkers do with the holodeck? They recreate pastoral fantasies from the past. They recreate Robin Hood or Sherlock Holmes. They don't imagine new possibilities. They're trapped in the linear imagination already constructed for them. And we're already seeing media stories about people working towards holodecks through virtual reality technologies, for example. So this will start to steer that narrative, the influence of this powerful cultural item. We could look at horror as a way out, actually, and I, I do a lot of work around horror and the supernatural in, in design because I think it does have a powerful place. Ringu is, uh, is a fantastic film which uh, features the vengeful spirit of a murdered teenage girl climbing out of a videotape to extract her revenge on anyone who watches it, which is laughable, but the reason it's horrifying is because it breaks the norms of what we think a television is. Um, in the previous talk, the notion of cultural assimilation was alluded to. The idea that given time with a technology, we start to learn of its limits and opportunities. We start to build cultural narratives for what it's for, what are its appropriate uses and deployments. The television by 1998 was way assimilated into popular culture. Everybody had a television. So the notion that the television could suddenly open a portal to a spiritual world where someone would come out and kill you was what was terrifying about it, that it broke these bounds that we'd established. A similar and perhaps real historical example, is it going to play? I'll see what happens, is the arrival of the mail train. That didn't work, I had to go back. Well, this is a video, there's a train that comes towards the camera. Everybody should have seen this by now. If you've done any sort of, if you've been on the internet and you haven't seen this, you haven't seen the internet yet. Um, so the arrival of the mail train was one of the first pieces of um, cinema that most people saw. It was the first piece of popular cinema that was kind of around and in, in the world, in France and in, in Britain and in Germany. Um, and there's, a, there's an apocryphal kind of urban myth that accompanies the film, which is that when people saw the film, they ran from the cinema screaming. So they, 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 this was the first piece of moving image a lot of people had seen, but it by far wasn't the first train a lot of people had seen. And people responded in a way that they would when they see a train coming towards them, which is to run away screaming. Because the cinema hadn't yet been culturally assimilated, they didn't understand necessarily the limitations of what this media, what this technology could do. So they responded using the kind of responses of the old media. The imaginary structure around it hadn't yet existed. Wow, this is weird. There we go, back to that one. So there's also there's a deep history to all these imaginations, a deep, deep history through film, through cinema, through television, through uh, early telecommunications technologies. We are on somewhat of a kind of connected, branching path of imaginary stories, even if we've just been shuffled into one kind of siding. The Skype is a really interesting um, technology. There's a lot to say about Skype, and I don't have time to say it all. But it's interesting to think about Skype as a 3,500-year-old technology because humans have always aspired to see to other parts of the world. 
The ancient Greeks tried scrying, looking into water. The alchemists and the sort of medieval magicians were trying uh, crystal balls as a way of seeing around the world. So Skype isn't something that just popped out of nowhere in Estonia in, in the early 2010s. It was something that had always been at the root of human aspiration. It was something that was richly embedded in what we wanted as human beings. And so why are we still stuck with, with this? Why haven't we moved past this? If we look back to the Jetsons, we look back to the, the, the 19th century fantasies of everyone flying around in balloons, even the bicycle when it was a cutting-edge technology in the kind of 1910s, we're still stuck with this thing, this thing because it's seen as the most productive, it's seen as the most efficient, it's the best way to get from A to B. So I'm interested in, very briefly, strategies we can use to break out of this system. And I don't have an answer, I, don't, I really don't have an answer, I'm just very upset, really. So, Alfred Gell describes a thing called the technologies of enchantment. And he says, technical, these are technical strategies that exploit, or exploit innate or derived psychological biases so as to enchant the other person and cause him or her to perceive social reality in a way that is favorable to the interests of the enchanter. So basically what he's saying is that whenever a new technology emerges, let's say the car again or the autonomous car, the narrative that accompanies it of efficiency, of safety or productivity already tells us what we should imagine next from this vehicle, already tells us what we should expect from this thing. It doesn't give us opportunity to imagine around it. So how do we create new technologies of enchantment? How do we kind of break out of this enchanted bubble? You know, I'm an artist, so I'm going to say art, so it's going to be art. It's not a great solution, but there you go. This is um, James Bridle's autonomous trap. Um, he's been designing in the hills of Greece, he's been designing his own autonomous car, but his autonomous car, rather than getting him from A to B as quickly and efficiently as possible, takes him on the derive, takes him on a psychogeographic journey that's defined by its own AI. Rather than trying to create something that would just perform what a human would want to do as efficiently as possible, he designed an AI that would pick its own routes, that would decide its own way of traveling and where it wanted to go. He's exploiting the inherent ontology of the computer rather than just building a human notion of what's good driving into it. I'm very interested in um, simulation platforms, uh, increasingly so because most of the work of technology is in simulation and prediction, whether it's agricultural farming or, or data gathering. So, the, the, the recent cheapening and, and broadening of, of simulation platforms like Blender and Cinema 4D has resulted in a kind of craft rendering artist movement of people who are exploiting um, the physical bounds put into rendering software to create new types of fantasies as a challenge to the kind of hegemonic aesthetics of you know, industrial rendering platforms where we get these sh same shiny spires and perfect lives, doing weird stuff like the Surrealists did to sort of challenge the, the aesthetics that we were stuck with from the beginning. I'm also really interested in the sublime in technology. The sublime is this notion that there is something greater and beyond our understanding. There is something there that we can't quite comprehend using our sensorium. So, James Auger and Jimmy Loazzo built a series of um, projects called Sublime Gadgets, and this is one of my favorite, the Ripple Counter. And all it is is a simple device, it sits on a body of water, and it counts the amount of ripples. For hours. It's beautiful. You haven't seen anything like it. Behind it on the wall is a, is a digital counter with 18 positions on it. Now, according to James Auger's calculation, it would take about three billion years for this to fill up the counter with enough counts of a ripple. That's fascinating. That's incredible. You're watching something that will outlast most of civilization if it was left on, just counting ripples. It's not doing it for any productive purpose. It doesn't mean anything. It's not useful data. But it's something that gives us a sense of our humanness by seeing the, the computerness of this thing. 
I'm also very interested in video games. I'm interested in um, the, the, the subculture known as speedrunning in video games particularly, and I've written a lot about it, weirdly. It's such a simple thing, but it's so powerful, I think. So speedrunning is uh, a subculture in video games where people uh, uh, hack the architecture of the game itself in order to complete it faster. So when we say you complete a game or play a game, what we really mean is you just followed the instructions that were laid out for you in the way that you were supposed to to get to the end. What speedrunners do is they actually unpack the entire programming and architecture of a video game and build new games out of it by understanding how to exploit it and how to trick it. And exploitation, I think, is one of the key strategies for imagining new things. This is a great project. It's not technological, but I, when I was putting this together, I found it in an old slide deck and I had to reuse it. Peter von Tiesenhausen's The Chapel. He was a, um, he's a Canadian uh, artist, just a kind of outsider artist working you know, from his house. And a, a gas company came along and said they wanted to buy out a load of his land to put a gas pipe through. And they were going to give him $200 an acre to do it. So what, what he did was he went around the land and he put sticks in the ground. And he said, this is now a piece of land art. And they, now you have to pay me $600,000 an acre for this because it's now a cultural thing. Brilliant. Just ex he also started to charge consultation fees. Anyway, a fascinating exploit of a system to actually look at a system in the same way speedrunners do as a sophisticated interaction of parts and imagine new things you could do with it, not just follow what you're told to do with it. Hacking and exploitation. I think there's an next slide. Yeah. Last slide. Difficult. I did a workshop yesterday, and the point is to try and unlearn what we think technology is. Because the narrative of Stop laughing. It's a serious point. It's maybe the best fun that cat ever had. We're, we're, we're foreclosed in our imagination because the people before said, we've got to be more productive and efficient. And then we developed things and went, yes, they're more productive and efficient, Dad. They're much better. And then we tell the people afterwards, they've got to be more productive and efficient. And there's lots of stuff out there that doesn't have to be. And it could be just about spiritual experience or existential stuff or you know, building robots for cats to hang out on with ducks. Thanks very much, guys. <laughs>